Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast and Mudbloods in Murmurs. Today we will be discussing school rivalries, fame-obsessed teachers, and wizarding racism. So Madeline, what type of magical creature would you most want to have as a pet? Well, I feel like mine's going to be weird, so you should probably go first. Okay, well, I've always been fascinated with um, Hermione's half-cat, half-neasel Crookshanks and how smart he is. And uh, I've I've always thought that I would like to have a very, very intelligent cat. So I would go with a Neasel or a half-Neasel cat. So what exactly is a Neasel? A Neasel is basically just like a cat, except they're really intelligent. Um, so they can understand people and they can sort of quasi-communicate. Um, and as we see in Prisoner of Azkaban, they're very adept at telling when things aren't as they should be. Okay. So basically you just want a really smart cat. It makes sense. Exactly. So I'm going to say that I my favorite is a Thestral, and it's kind of creepy, but I think that they're my favorites because I, like, it's not their fault that, you know, only people that have seen death can see them. Like, it's not their fault. They're just, they're, they exist. They're there. And so I just want us to, you know, recognize the Thestrals, and they do a lot for the students. Yeah. Thestrals need love, too. It's very important. So this chapter begins when Harry goes to Quidditch practice super early one morning and Colin Creevy um, catches him and asks to tag along. They go down to the pitch for practice and then the Slytherin Quidditch team arrives and reveal that Draco Malfoy is their new seeker. Yes, so when Draco Malfoy is our new seeker, um, Hermione accuses him of bribery um, to get on the team and then Malfoy calls Hermione a mudblood. After he does this, Ron attempts to curse Malfoy, but it backfires onto him. And so the trio leave the pitch as uh, Ron begins vomiting up slugs, and they go to Hagrid's. While they're at Hagrid's, Ron explains to Harry and Hermione, who both don't know what mudblood means and why it's so offensive. After Ron convalesces from his uh, slug vomiting, Harry and Ron go back up to the castle, where they're informed that they're going to serve their detentions. Harry will be answering fan mail with Lockhart, and Ron will be polishing silver in the trophy room with Argus Filch. So while Harry's serving his detention, answering fan mail in Lockhart's office, he hears a disembodied voice threatening to kill someone. Um, But when he freaks out and asks Lockhart what happened, Lockhart doesn't seem to notice the voice at all. So one of the themes or plot devices or just things that happen in the series is um, Harry's rivalry with Draco Malfoy, and it really starts ramping up in this book in particular. I know we discussed it um, in some chapters last season um, in Philosopher's Stone, but there wasn't really that much direct confrontation between the two of them until really this chapter of this book, and this is when it starts getting much more intense, and they start really trying to go out of their way to sabotage the other and get the other in trouble for things. Um, And it really begins here with Malfoy, um, as the reader and Harry and Hermione and Ron perceive, sort of buying his way onto the Slytherin Quidditch team um, by having his father donate uh, brand new brooms for all of the team members. 
And um, I don't know. I think this says a lot about Draco and, and Lucius, actually, because it says, like, um, I don't know. We, we, we were thinking about the fourth chapter of this book when we remember Lucius and Draco are talking about all of Harry and Hermione's accomplishments and Draco's complaining that they keep getting such special treatment from the teachers because they're so good at everything. Mm-hmm. And Lucius is like, I don't want to hear about this. Like, you should be better than everyone because you're pure blood and they're right. not. Um, but it seems like he's totally happy just to buy his way into fame and influence anyway. It's yeah. like it doesn't, he doesn't need to have the accomplishments. Then. He doesn't need like any integrity and um, anything that feels like justified like he's actually deserves to be on the team or in general that he's better than them he just needs to have it appear like he's better than them right and and again just like buying his way in you know so there's no element of hard work here there's no like i deserve this because i'm the best it's just like i'm i'm gonna just do the easy way i'm Mm -hmm. just gonna pay them a whole bunch of money and they're gonna offer me a spot and we can see how this um, type of attitude, you know, may have influenced, I guess, influenced Harry potentially because at the beginning, you know, um, of the whole series, um, when Draco encounters Harry, he, you know, mentions that, you know, you don't want to sit with Ron, you don't want to sit with the Weasleys because you'll learn that some wizarding families are better than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're going to get into like the the whole relationship between the Malfoys and and people like them and the whole rest of the wizarding community a little bit later in this episode, but that is a good um, thing to keep our our ear to the ground on is, you know, how does Malfoy's opinion of like the other wizarding families change over the course of the series, um, and and what is Harry's perception of that attitude, but yeah, so we see that in this ch- in this chapter it escalates to an actual use of magic or attempted use of magic, really, mm-hmm. from Ron. It's their first time, like, trying to curse the other one. Um, and obviously it backfires. And we've alluded to this um, eventuality of Ron's wand backfiring on him throughout the book, and, right. and it's a, a thing that will we'll keep coming up. Um, but this is the first instance of it happening in this exact way, of it, like, him trying to cast a spell, and it backfires on him. Yeah. Um, and this is also the first, like you said, of many times where you know, their rivalry is escalating and where um, basically I feel like almost every time after this that they're actually encountered where they're not directly observed by professors maybe, they're trying to curse each other. Yeah. And it, and it escalates to the point where in Half-Blood Prince, like all it takes is for one of them to like see the other one alone and mm-hmm. they try to curse each other. Mm-hmm. And and it's just like this really powerful enmity between Harry and Malfoy that, that just keeps escalating throughout the series. And it's not like either of them makes it easy on the other, you know. Draco goes out of his way to antagonize them and goad them into fighting him because he knows that that's how they're going to get in trouble. And, of course, Harry and Ron rise to the bait almost every time and do escalate things to violence almost every time. So Right, and it's, it's interesting because we say it's the rivalry between um, Harry and Draco, which it is, but really it's the trio, the three of them and Draco. And, you know, uh, Draco has... Crab and Doyle, but they don't really do a lot. They're just kind of bumbling around. But Ron, especially, and sometimes Hermione, actually actively attack Draco, um, either for on behalf of Harry or just for their own, mm-hmm. you know, anger at, towards him based on what they're doing. So um, I think that you know it's not 
really just between the two of them, especially at the beginning. It's more the three of them against the world. That's true. Um, I think it's just because we see the whole book from Harry's perspective that we think of it as a rivalry between Harry and Draco, but you're right. I mean, it actually is more often the case that Ron is the one who's the quickest to jump to violence um, and is the most hot-headed of the three of them. Hermione tends to stay above it all, and as we'll see in this chapter, she really doesn't participate in their uh, fight in any way. Um, But, yeah, Harry and and especially Ron definitely do. And I think it's interesting also that this this moment where the rivalry escalates is really... um, based on this experience of Draco, you know, insulting Hermione and just in being racist. And, you know, it's not something that's like an really an ego thing between Harry and Draco, which it gets to be later. But the original part of this is, you know, defending friends and defending honor and like what's good in the world kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's obvious that like Draco's contempt for Hermione in this moment is not just like a direct result of her accusing him of bribery. It's also like his ingrained attitude that his family holds towards muggle-born wizards. And also I think he was trying to get a rise out of Harry and Ron Mm -hmm. and maybe Hermione too, but it was obvious that she didn't understand the insult. So yeah. And at this right, we'll talk about how Ron's the only one that does know what it means. But then they go to Hagrid's. Right, and they're trying to get um, Hagrid to maybe cure Ron of his uh, of his slug vomit um, curse, and and they see Lockhart there, and Lockhart is again trying to insert himself into someone else's expertise. He's trying to teach Hagrid how to um, pull kelpies out of a well, and uh, Hagrid is obviously having none of this. Yeah, so it's like Lockhart can't help himself, even with Hagrid, who you know for all he knows, is the gamekeeper and not even allowed to use magic. He's just, he's already trying to say, I know your trade already. I can help you with this. Right, yeah. And and I, I think this does seem like Lockhart's MO, really. I mean, he has a lot of alleged experience with magical creatures and, and you know, sort of monsters, according to his books, you know, travels with trolls, wanderings with werewolves, you're with the Yeti. So you'd think that he has experience with a lot of the things that Hagrid has to deal with. And maybe he's just trying to pass off his like fake knowledge, his real knowledge to sort of bolster up that image. But I think he also just really is obsessed with the attention that, that this comes with. And, and even though there's really, he thinks no one around to watch this interaction happen, he still wants to try to show Hagrid that he is an expert and that he, like, does know more than him, which is absurd because this is actually Hagrid's job mm-hmm. and he's really good at it. Yeah, and we can see how Hagrid really dislikes Lockhart and doesn't care what he thinks because he tells Harry um, when they come to the hut that, you know, that Lockhart was talking to him about Harry and that whole fame and that Hagrid said to Lockhart, you know, Harry's more famous than you without trying. Mm-hmm. And so that was probably the worst thing he could possibly say to Lockhart as an insult. Yeah. And and I think um, there's a really interesting interaction that happens right after that because Hermione, like, pipes up and she's, like, embarrassed. But she says in this, like, small voice, she's like, well, he must have been the best man for the job or Dumbledore wouldn't have hired him. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, she's obviously sticking up for Lockhart. Mm-hmm. She still has sort of a crush on him. And Hagrid, who the only thing we know about his character really throughout the series is that he trusts everything that Dumbledore does and Mm -hmm. says like a hundred percent. Hagrid says, 
he was the only man for the job. Mm-hmm. He was not the best man for the job. He was the only man for the job. Um, and so, like, the fact that he would disrespect this teacher that Dumbledore hired, you know, he's got some insider baseball information. Like, you know, he's the only candidate. So it says a lot about the type of person Lockhart is that, like, even Hagrid, who never questions Dumbledore's decisions, is, like, questioning this one. Right. And I think it's interesting, too, to think about, you know, what we find out about Hagrid later in this book and also what we know happens with Lockhart at the end of the book and his, um, you know, both of their connections with the Chamber of Secrets and all that stuff and how, um, at this point, you know, Hagrid almost sees through him in this interesting way that um, it sort of foreshadows the fact that, um, you know, Hagrid is the reasonable one here. He's not the one that we need to be worried about or thinking is actually hiding something, whereas Lockhart is and is going to be shady by the end. But Hagrid's kind of a red herring earlier. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, it It is obviously the case that, like, people are starting to get distrusting of Lockhart. And that, as we said, even last chapter, like, the mask is slipping a little bit. Mm -hmm. Ron is starting to lose faith. Harry is as well. I think even more so now. Um, And, you know, of the trio, really, it's just Hermione that still has faith in him at this point. And this is an interesting, you know, clue or evidence um, for Hagrid, I guess, against, against him being the one to open the chamber and that kind of thing. In what way? I think in the way that Hagrid is, you know, showing good insight here about Lockhart and also, you know, being rational about the whole, the whole situation and showing that he does have, you know, more knowledge than um, people may think he does. You know, he's not just some, you know, bumbling idiot that accidentally like did something so dangerous as open the chamber. Right. He does have a lot of expertise in this field and, and he does have insight into into how other people are. And it seems like in this case, even he knows that Lockhart's a fraud. Right. So obviously it can't be that good a facade. So the heart of the chapter, I think, is really when Draco calls Hermione a mudblood. So um, what is a mudblood? So Harry and Hermione actually don't know what it means, um, even though the insult was towards Hermione. So... Um, a mudblood is a racial slur for muggle-borns and in the wizarding world. And so Hermione has two muggle parents, so she's a muggle-born. Um, you know, Harry is a half-blood, mm-hmm. um, because he, his mother was muggle-born. Um, so then there's also the word blood traitors, which is basically like, sort of like allies or like people that are supporting, um, or interacting with Muggleborns, mm-hmm. um, and um, the opposite is going to be pure blood. So, um, this basically is talking about like literally blood, like race of you know you were saying that our blood is pure, your blood is not pure, mm-hmm. and so mud blood is like your blood is dirty. dirty. Blood. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's very insulting, and since Ron has grown up. Um, being, you know, learning to, you know, accept people no matter their background, um, he knows the meaning of that slur. And um, Harry and Hermione don't for different reasons, just because they didn't grow up in that world. Yes. And I think it's really interesting to look at actually how 
um, Hermione takes this knowledge. I think it's really interesting in the chapter reading her response to things that are said. So at first, she clearly doesn't understand it at all. She has almost no reaction to the slur. And then when Ron like explains it later on, um, when when Ron mentions to Hagrid what was said, and Hagrid looks shocked and appalled, and he says he didn't, and Hermione's just like, well, he did, but I, you know, I could tell it was very rude, but I didn't know what, what he meant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Ron explains the whole meaning of it and everything, and, and it doesn't actually mention Hermione's reaction to any of that knowledge or insight. Um, it just mentions her getting embarrassed when. Hagrid compliments her by saying there isn't a spell or Hermione can't do. So, um, you know, we would assume that she takes it pretty well, considering that she basically just got called dirty blooded. Um, I think it's because of, as you were saying, like this ingrained um, knowledge from the culture that, that Ron has and that Harry and Hermione don't share. That, you know, if you don't grow up with slurs being thrown at you, they're you're gonna have a harder time getting them to stick when you're an adult i think or even when you're a teenager so um i think it's just it's something that she will eventually start to be more insulted by but i think no one is ever more insulted by the slur than ron is right i think ron sees that as like this is the worst thing that you can call someone because it's a it's a slur that my people have invented for Mm -hmm. this other group that we should really be welcoming in because they are one of us Mm mm-hmm you know, and Ron doesn't see himself as any better than Hermione or Harry at all, mm-hmm. because his family are all about you know, there's nothing special about being a pure-blooded wizard. Um, all wizards are just wizards, basically. Whereas the Malfoys, you know, sitting on their ivory tower of wealth and arist- aristocracy, you know, they've got um, the ability to look down on the rest of the wizarding population and say like, we are better than you. And um, there is a lot of historical reason for why it's this particular divide um, that we can get into maybe in a different podcast. Um, But suffice it to say that in the wizarding world of Harry Potter, you know, in the history of the world, um, there were centuries where wizards were being persecuted by muggles. And so early wizards uh, in the Middle Ages basically were so afraid of being persecuted by muggles that they sequestered themselves away, which is why they have the International Statute of Secrecy, which is why wizards are in hiding, and which is why um, factions of wizards have become sort of racist against muggles and muggle-borns. They're basically distrusting of them. Um, and I think that's where, you know, the, the crux of any sort of fear is usually a fear of the unknown, And in this case, I think the xenophobia of muggles and muggle-borns comes from that distrust, comes from that fear of the unknown. We don't know what these people's intentions are. We don't know what they're going to try to do with this knowledge that we're giving them by welcoming it as wizards. Um, And so maybe we shouldn't do it at all. That was Salazar Slytherin's position. That was the position of those people who said... You know, we shouldn't let these people into Hogwarts or any wizarding school. We shouldn't teach them magic because they're going to use it against us. They're going to take it back to their muggle families and they're going to use it to drive us out of Britain. Um, and, and that's where that comes from. And, and it's interesting to see how that fits into a modern society. I think there's obvious parallels we can draw to our own society. Um, but I don't know. What are your what are your thoughts about that? I'm sorry. I seem to process. I feel like I didn't really have a lot of other thoughts because you said a lot of the things. Um Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about what, um, you know, Rowling is so good at writing 
allegories, I guess, of our world into the wizarding world in a way that you almost don't notice they're happening until they are there. Um, I think that, you know, the way that she brought up this idea of mudbloods and made it so clear that, you know, this was an insult and, you know, also introduced it in this book where we've already gotten to know Hermione and um, Harry, who's half-blood and other people like that. Um, it was really clever and interesting, especially for kids that are readers, usually mm -hmm. the first readers of this, to see, like, you know, we know these people, we love them, they're, and to have Hermione be, you know, more clever than the others, you know, they're even better at some things than the pure blood wizards. It's like, of course, this makes no sense. Why would it matter what their blood is? And I think that's a really clever way that she did that, um, to make it seem like so obvious that this is such a bad idea and why would it matter? And, um, I think that, you know, it would be relatively easy to get there anyway, but I think the way she did it was really clever, um, especially for younger readers to understand, you know, this is what racism in our world is like, and it makes no sense that this is happening. Mm -hmm. And why, why wouldn't we, you know, be as, be angry about it in this way? Because we love these characters. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, um, and I don't want to say that she's being preachy or anything, because I, I do think it was a very well-written idea and allegory, as you were just saying. Um, but I do want to express that I think allegory is an incredibly useful tool to get kids, especially to understand really difficult concepts like this, in a way that doesn't feel preachy. I think if you write a book that's ostensibly about racism and try to give it to an eight-year-old and have them understand it, they're not really going to get it in the same way that you would if you were 25. Um, but if you give a kid Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets and you ask them to explain, you know, why is it wrong that Malfoy is calling Hermione this name and why is he treating her differently, you know, they will understand that and they will start to see very slowly over time as they reflect on that sort of feeling and interaction, like what meaning does do I take from this? What meaning does this give me for the rest of my life and for the rest of the world? Um, and I know for me, certainly this book helped me a lot to understand issues about discrimination and, and prejudice um, in my life. Not that I had had that much experience with it outside of books and media, um, but but just for, for me, this sort of thing was really, really helpful. And I hope that it is for other readers as well. So now that I think we've satisfied all the really important themes of the chapter, um, let's get into some of the foreshadowings and plot points that I think are most pertinent for when we move on to our future chapters. So at the end of the chapter, we notice that Harry has heard a voice that it seems like Lockhart cannot hear. Um, and so what does this mean? Mm -hmm. Is Harry imagining this whole thing? Is Lockhart lying? Or is it really something that only Harry can hear or understand? And what are the implications of all of that? So we know this is the basilisk in the walls um, that Harry is hearing. And the reason why he's hearing, he can hear it, is because that this basilisk is a large snake. And Harry speaks Parseltongue. Mm -hmm. And he um, can understand and speak to snakes. So Harry doesn't realize this yet at this point. Although uh -huh. he has already had an experience speaking to a snake in the first book, which we talked about. But Harry also doesn't understand that his conversation with that snake was anything out of the ordinary. No. Yet. He's never actually talked about that interaction with anybody yet. Um, 
and the only people who know are the Dursleys. So right. when he actually does bring this up in this book, it becomes clear that not only can Harry speak and understand Parseltongue, but he can't tell that he's speaking and understanding Parseltongue. No. It sounds just like English to him. Right. So it's sort of a reflex that he has. And that's why he is hearing this disembodied voice speaking English and no one else can, is that it's a snake. Right. And he just reflexively understands it. Mm-hmm. The next foreshadowing that is mentioned is that Hagrid mentions that the defense against the dark arts position um, might be jinxed. So, um, and that Dumbledore had trouble finding anyone. That's why he says Lockhart was the only person for the job because right. he was the only one that applied, I guess. There is some foreshadowing with that. Right, because um, this is really the first inkling that we have that the position actually is cursed. And, and we'll start to notice it more and more as the books go on that, wow, people are only lasting one year. This is really strange. Fred and George even make a point of that in the fifth book when they count off the professors that they've had in the last five years. Um, and then it's finally revealed in, I think, Half-Blood Prince that uh, Dumbledore confirms that the position has been cursed ever since Tom Riddle visited the school and was denied the position. Mm-hmm. There's a couple other things that happen at Hagrid's Hut in this chapter that I think we can consider major foreshadowing points. Um, first is that Hagrid is still using his pink umbrella mm-hmm. um, and... It is referred to as like a potential cause of why the pumpkins are so large in this mm-hmm. case. Um, and it's interesting that these two, there, are, there are two juxtaposed broken wands, right? Yeah. But one of them backfires and is terrible at doing magic and is very obviously poorly repaired. The other one is sort of hidden and it's covert, but it seems to actually do magic fairly well. So one wonders if he's had it repaired somehow. Um, but the obvious implication, if um, we haven't mentioned it before, is that Hagrid's umbrella is home to the pieces of his broken wand. Um, Which we will find out why his wand was broken later in, in this book. book. Right. Um, and the other thing is that Hagrid mentions um, Ginny. She says she was just looking around the grounds, like exploring. Um, and Hagrid makes a crack about her, like hoping she would run into Harry. But um, when we find out that actually she's sort of under Tom Riddle's influence, um, we have to wonder if this is the first clue that something is amiss. Why is she just wandering off by herself? And is it connected to when she eventually starts killing roosters to protect the basilisk? So we have to wonder whether that's already started. Something that I totally forgot was in this chapter um, and that was foreshadowing is that when Ron is doing his detention where he's polishing the trophies of Filch, he has a final slug belching attack um, on a certain trophy and has to buff it for hours. And then that trophy is actually Tom Riddle's special award for services to the school. At this point, we have no idea who Tom Riddle is mm-hmm. or anything about him, but that is what happens. Right. And, of course, uh, the events surrounding said award are going to become clearer in this book and of the utmost importance towards the end as well. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and Mudbloods and Murmurs. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially wizards' historical relations with muggles and wizard racism, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. We really do love all of your questions and comments. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at www.theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we pass on to Chapter 8. 
the Death Day Party. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on the Harry Podcast. Knox.